0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. A little while back, we did a special for International Human Rights Day, and while all of the segments that were on that episode uh, got a lot of really positive attention, there was one in particular that stood out a little bit, and that was the, the section on harm reduction that was done by Zoe Lambert. We've had uh, more than a couple of people reach out and ask for us not only to put that video up separately, which we're going to do, but... Because of the amount of interest and because we've certainly seen lots of misunderstanding and lots of myths around harm reduction, we wanted to do a standalone episode with Zoe and sort of do a little bit more of a deep dive into it. So we're very, very grateful uh, to be able to uh, have a conversation today with Zoe Lambert, who is the Owner of Abscission Wellness, and uh, I had to ask what abscision meant, so don't feel bad if you don't. Uh, and also, quite a passionate harm reduction advocate, Zoe. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> so to start with, um, the, the the video that you did for the the special, I, I really can't call it a regular episode of the breakdown because it really was was something quite unique. The video that you did for that uh, for that special, um, really got quite a bit of interest. And I think a big part of that has to do with the fact that there's so many pieces of uh, harm reduction, addiction treatments, uh, that, that whole spectrum uh, that are, are grossly misunderstood. So before we get into that, can you just tell our audience a little bit about who is Zoe Lambert?
1: So I've been working in social services for about eight years. I've done um, multiple things in it. I've worked with refugees, immigrants. I've worked with people with developmental disabilities. I've worked with people who are having mental health issues, people who are in active addiction, people who are in recovery, um, and people who are experiencing homelessness. so right now, I'm currently not working with any agency. I have set up my own um, mental health um, wellness coaching because while working in the social services, um, there was a big disparity in people who want to like get help and services actually available to them. There would be a lot of clients who would be like okay like this is the day I'm feeling great I want to reach out and we would go and you know either the hospital or access mental health would put us on a year to two-year wait list um to get that mental health and usually after that um after that they would um You know, wait the year, and when they actually got in, it wouldn't be the day that they were actually wanting to get help. Um, So it would lapse, and we would have to start that process all over again. Um, So I have currently set up a business to kind of fill in that gap, so that I can work on a sliding scale basis, um, and teach people maybe not that deep um, trauma work that therapy can provide, but at least give them um, day-to-day coping mechanisms and help them build um, healthy support systems um, around them so that at least we can lighten that day-to-day load um, while they wait um, for more, I guess, like advanced services uh, with like a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, I am currently trying to get into my master's of counseling, um, so that I can eventually open my own practice as well. Um, but just gaining experience, I guess, in the meantime.
0: Okay. Uh, so with the topic of addiction, that. Word is probably one of the biggest words in the the English language, not by letter count, but by how much needs to un- be unpacked when we're talking about it. Because it seems like, uh, and certainly based on the, the talk that you gave for the special, it seems like it's probably one of the most poorly understood concepts uh, by the general public, at the very least, uh, in regards to sort of what drives it uh, and in regards to what, treatment modalities can or should look like so to start with um, when we're talking about addiction let's go really basic are we talking about a lifestyle choice or is there something more to it than that
1: um, oh yeah, for sure. It is not a lifestyle choice, and I honestly think that we're indoctrinated into it um, at a very early age. Um, if we think of our capitalist, this consumerist um, society, we are constantly be te- um, being told to consume, to consume, to consume, consume, consume um, to an unhealthy point, and really, um, that is addiction at its basis too, right? So it's a huge societal problem. We just have um ha- like I guess socially accepted addiction and then not socially accepted addiction. Um but really um addiction's anything that you consume um habitually to a point that it's affecting um your life negatively. Um, and so when we think about that, we could think about shopping right? You know, we have, I I know I do for sure. I definitely shot my worries away. And (laughs) that is addiction. Um, Sugar is an addiction. Um, Meth is an addiction. They're all on the same category and spectrum um, of what can be unhealthy. And I think that's, that's kind of what bothers me when people, you know, outcast people with certain addictions, um, just because, you know, we're technically, as long as we kind of, you know, interact with the society that we're in, all of us have an addiction, um, whether it be little or to an extreme.
0: Do you think that it would be safe to say that the, the nature of addiction is, is at its core um, effectively a reward pathway that's gotten a little bit out of control?
1: For sure. For sure. And I think, um, right now that's, uh, like we're almost like overstimulated as a society to have such, uh, I guess like to get that dopamine, um, we really need to work on it. And we see that within our social media platforms, right. Uh, of us constantly scrolling or, um, you know, it, that that is um the basis of it is just this dopamine reward system but i also think underneath that is um a need to heal and a need to cope um as well right so i don't think i th- i don't think if you put a person um and them in a healthy environment with a healthy support system and give them a bunch of dopamine traps whether it be you know meth social media whatever um with no stresses that they would form addiction whatsoever um and that is and and that has been proven in the rat city experiment um where they gave rats um, the option for cocaine and such and when they put them in adverse experiences um the rats did a bunch of cocaine but when they set up their cage to be like a rat paradise basically um they didn't touch it um and I think humans act very similar is that we lack this well it's not that we lack the skills we're not taught the skills to cope um that is never you know mentioned really in our educational systems whatsoever um and when we don't learn how to cope properly then we um we seek instant gratification and that is when that dopamine reward system really gets you know kind of out of control right
0: so one of the things that, that you talked about in your, your segment on the special was, and it goes with that, that reward system and the, the negative stimulus piece, but one of the things you talked about was the whole idea of it's very difficult, if, if not impossible, for addiction to exist in the absence of trauma. Um, can you talk a little bit about how trauma forms the foundation for addiction?
1: Oh, for sure. So, um, so and the, the trauma is such, a, almost like stigmatized word. And I don't think a lot of people understand that, um, trauma is any prolonged, um, I guess, stimulation to our, um, sympathetic nervous system, which is our amygdala, which is our just kind of flight or fight, um, response. Right. Um, again, it's not just for, you know, war victims or victims of abuse. It could be someone experiencing, um, you know, a divorce or, uh, in the family, right. Um, someone experiencing the death, um, of a close one, um, or even just going to, a uh, school that you're bullied quite often, um, and such. And so that prolonged, um, stress response releases a bunch of cortisol um, and cortisol um, can help us get out of danger real quick <laughs> um so we we can't say that cortisol is just a horrible hormone but it is when it is prolonged and that is because it starts destroying integral parts of our brain um such as um our prefrontal cortex which is all our language all our reasoning our impulse control um, our emotional regulation um also the hippocampus which is um Learning and memory. And another part that I didn't mention in my speech is um, the corpus callosum, which um, is just a center to speak to other parts of the brain. It allows our brain to communicate um, with different sectors. Um, and this um, destruction allows people just to be a little bit more vulnerable. Like if you have, you know, low ability to control impulse control or your emotions or to learn or to remember what you've, you have learned or, um, for your logical brain to speak to your emotional, emotional brain. Um, then, you know, with that fragmentation, it leaves people really vulnerable, um, to high-risk behaviors such as addiction Um, and then unfortunately when a lot of these high-risk behaviors um, increase the kind of that degrading of those brain parts um, not only from you know just like we think of prolonged drug use um, kind of destroying our brain but we don't think about you know getting in abusive relationships. And that abuse continuing that cycle of trauma and continuing those destructions of those brain parts as well. Um though speaking to codependency is kind of an addiction um as well, so <laughs> okay,
0: do you think that it would be fair? I mean it, I think you're 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 bang on when you say that the trauma as a as a word is poorly misunderstood, and I think part of that might be because uh, it's 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 an incredibly broad word. I mean when we're when we're talking about trauma we can we can talk about any of the examples that you use there from. Uh, divorce, to abuse, to to you name it. But I think that there's my take, and I'd love to get your your take on this. And please tell me if I'm wrong, because I am a lot. Um, but uh, my take on it is 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 that it kind of sort of includes anything that's uh, in any way a negative challenge or has a, as a negative effect on a person's identity. I mean, we see this certainly with. Uh, there's no shortage of oil field workers who have made work in oil and gas their identity. And they've suffered an injury while on the, the job that has prevented them from, from working. And so uh, there's lots of examples where these oil field workers have been prescribed by a physician, perhaps inappropriately, uh, medications that have higher addictive qualities. And uh, in an effort to try to get back to the job or to stay on the job, these medications then get overused. Um, they're not able to go back to work. And now we have somebody who's a, who's a full-blown uh, opioid addict. Uh, so it's it, to me, it seems like the, the, the definition of, of trauma is, is difficult to define because it's so based on what's going to damage that individual's perception of themselves. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: I think that is fair to say. Um, And I think it also, like, you do bring up a really good point that, um, so especially when speaking about the oil fields, um, and up North and such, um, my fiance has gone up there. I know all about it. Um, and it really is a place that brews, um, isolation and isolation is the huge part in trauma is, um, again, that's why most of my business is trying to develop healthy support systems. Uh, Because you can experience so much adversity, but as long as you have people that um, love you, that are there to support you, it really cushions that brain um, damage that you have from that. So that is really the Difference, right? So, like, we could have, you know, an oil worker that, you know, got laid off, maybe um, prescribed something for, you know, chronic pain. Um, and, you know, he can be traumatized, yes, from that um, event. But um, that trauma stops once someone cares for him, once someone supports him, once he feels safe somewhere, right? Um, and Then we take another oil worker um, that got laid off that might be now addicted to opiates or, you know, there's tons, benzodiazepines, amphetamines, ADHD, medication, the list goes on. Um, and if he comes home and there is no one to support, you know, him or her, through this, that trauma just continues. Because the worst thing about trauma is not really the event itself, it's going through it alone and unsupported. And that's when that damage really comes into place. And um, that's why I have such, you know, I guess, angst, just pure angst and anger um, Mm -hmm. towards removing harm reduction is because now we're allowing people to go through trauma alone and unsupported and that's that is truly uh, the real damage right um and it there's no there's no way for an individual um to take themselves alone if uh, I know lot of people that kind of um, pushes against our ideology of um, individualism that we have here in Canada and that you know kind of that idea that you know you can do everything alone um, but you can't every every um, thing that I have done in my life can be attributed to one person at least one person right Um, so I don't really understand how our government currently wants um, people that are that vulnerable to, you know, get better al- alone. So
0: before we get into sort of what, what harm reduction is and how the, the UCP is in, in many ways working to dismantle it, um, the, the one other thing that I just want us to sort of touch on is I think that part of the, the challenge, and this is another place where I'm going to ask you to tell me if I'm wrong, Um, but I think that part of the challenge for a lot of people who don't have firsthand addiction experience with addiction or even secondhand experience with addiction is that we tend to view other people's experiences through the lens of our own experiences. And when we're talking about trauma, it's not something that can be objectively quantifiably measured. Like I can't say that, that using you as an example, in a totally unfair way, um, but I can't say that i your your trauma's a four, and then it's now rated as a four, and that's what it's going to be because depending on on who you are, what your life experiences were, what was going on when you were experiencing whatever that trauma was, it could be very, very different for some people than others. I think about my my own profession and and I work as a as a paramedic I've seen plenty of of my coworkers experience calls that to me. I would be able to, to, to walk away from relatively unaffected, but for them, it's, it's profoundly affecting. And I, I work very hard not to watch them get affected and go, ah, wimps, uh, because they're, they're experiencing that event through their lens, not my lens, um, and I think, to me, it's one of the really, really important things that we need to, to include in the conversation around harm reduction and addiction is the idea that I don't get to subjectively rate other people's trauma through my own lens. I have to be willing to listen to what their experiences are and how they affected them. Do you think that's a, a safe thing to say?
1: For sure. And I think you bring up the issue of resiliency, right? And um, that's a thing that we can't see, and that we just assume that everyone has, right? Um, And there are so many different types of resiliencies and factors. And that's why we, we, again, our brains are very limited. Uh, I don't want to say that we're like stupid creatures, but the, the damn, there's things in our brain that really do not work in our favor. Um, And that, like, we make shortcuts, right? So we just assume a lot because to, you know, think about all the individual factors of one individual situation at all time, um, you know, it's overwhelming. We can't process process that much information. Um, So I think a lot of it is a being aware of that shortcut right and um just realizing that you are going to assume first that you have to use your controlled thinking to actually flush out the details right and um not think in black and white measures um but going back to resiliency i think again yeah there's um I grew up in a lot of trauma, a lot of prolonged trauma, and I also have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is why I'm so um, interested in this topic, I guess. Um, and I grew up with friends um, that went through basically the same thing that I did, but came out just, you know, not, not like, um, like they still experienced trauma, still adverse um you know, experiences, but they came out, you know, with adult skills and coping mechanisms that I never had and such. Um, and I really had to struggle to, um, learn all of that. And that was because, again, I had very little social support in my life and they had a lot of social support. Um, but, you know, we also think of biological factors, right? Like um, mental health and addiction runs in my family. They might not run in that other family that's also resiliency there um and a resiliency that we can't really change unfortunately just a biological basis um then we have psychological so you know I see this a lot as well um a lot of people don't they they don't when they see me they don't see that I used to you know um inactive addiction um to amphetamines they don't see that um i you know used to be you know on the streets um or you know selling drugs whatsoever or fighting people they're like no i don't see that from you um and they don't actually a lot of people don't believe me um that that has happened um, because of the person i am today and the only difference between a lot of you know the clients that I used to work with um, who were in active addiction and experiencing homeless and to me is just the fact that um, I was able to access certain systems while they were not, right? Um, and that's my resiliency, right? And that is literally just pure luck on my um, side of things. And, um, and I, it just that's why I can understand a lot of people who just like, you know, like, again, a lot of people are like, why can't you just choose it? Why can't you just go through it? Right. Um, And some people are just not that lucky, right? Some people are born in really um, awful, awful situations. Um, The stories that I have heard, I will never complain about my life ever again. um, Because the trauma that's ensuing in our society is, um, it, it's incomprehensible almost. Um, and when you would meet those people, you wouldn't realize that, like, because, you know, it takes years to gain trust um, with people to talk about, you know, their deep, darkest secrets um, and traumas that when you meet those these people up front you would never see that you would never know what happened to them right um and again that's just black and white thinking that's just our automatic thinking making those mental shortcuts so that we can think easier um But we really have to take that second to be like, oh, wait, okay. So, you know, like my resiliency is very high because all of these things that I am very grateful and very lucky to have in my life. And, you know, I shouldn't make other people feel bad that they don't have um, these things to be grateful about, right? Instead, I should role model or, you know, help create those structures for them so they can heal themselves. Okay. Sorry.
0: (laughs) No, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, So with, with, with sort of a very basic cursory induction or introduction to the, the, the nature of addiction and, and what drives it, let's talk about harm reduction. So if you could assume that we have people who are listening to the podcast from our, our audience of, of four um, that have no idea what harm reduction is, how would you define harm reduction?
1: So harm reduction is, uh, I guess, a collective structure of unconditional love. Um, and that unconditional love is, you know, telling people that a, we understand, um, well, maybe we don't understand how you got here, uh, but I'm going to sit with you, um, and we're going to take this journey together. And I'm not going to a shame you um, for who you are, because I know that shame is huge in trauma, and that you know, getting over trauma is not is is not. Reliving or processing these memories, it's forgiving the person that you had to become to cope with it, right? So I'm not going to add shame to that. I'm going to try to take that shame off and try to, you know, understand um, how you got there and make you you forgive yourself. Um, and the biggest thing about harm reduction too is the fact that we need to keep these people alive. Um, while we're doing it right and um, they can't do it if you know they've injected with a dirty needle and now have hep C and are now focusing on you know their physical health right they can't do that if they're overdosing on fentanyl every you know couple days and they're so they have so much anxiety about you know dying and overdosing that they can't they can't focus on you know forgiveness or acceptance or you know processing or you know um actually using the resources that are available um to them and such so and i i truly think that harm reduction um is the way to go for addiction just because, um, an abstinence-based approach, um, is conditional love. We will only care for you if you are this person, right? Um, and again, that's, that puts a lot of shame into the individual. Uh, and it's also very black and white thinking, um, you know, a lot of, people who recover right um we we think recovery as abstinence based it's not um recovery is when um your habitual use is not imposing negative consequences on your life um so a lot of people that i see are self-medicating um especially so traumas so ptsd is an anxiety disorder um and such um and when you have an anxiety disorder, you have a low GABA and it's gamma amino butric acid, just basically something that calms you down. So your flight, um, fight and flight go up, right? Um, and GABA calms it down. It's like shh, no, all right, dangers end. So anxiety people don't have that GABA, so it's always like ah, right? <laughs> We're not calming down whatsoever. Um, and um, there's actually a lot of substances that give you GABA and that would be marijuana that would be alcohol that would be um be cocaine um as well right so a lot of people who are you know drinking or in an active addiction is because it makes them feel better because they're getting um the neurotransmitters that they're lacking right so to be like you need to just cut it out completely is um It's just inconceivable, honestly, because, um, you know, it is helping that, um, person on a baseline. And as long as, um, you know, I've met people who would have one to two drinks, which is low risk drinking, um, has little to no, um, physical effects, um, such as damaging of the liver and such, and actually can help with your blood pressure, um, and, you know, abstinence based treatment would be like, no, they're not in recovery, but they, they are right because they are taking a charge in their life. They're doing it with intention and purpose, and they're being mindful of what they want and what they don't want. So
0: one of the, one of the comparisons, I mean, I mean there's, there's, there's a couple of, of points that I still want to make before I, before I let you go. But um, one of the comparisons that I've often heard people make in regards to uh, addiction is that, and you were talking quite a bit about the, the brain remodeling that happens during trauma, um, one of the comparisons is to any number of chronic diseases, probably the most common one that I hear is is, is diabetes. Uh, in that if somebody's a diabetic, they're almost certainly going to be a, some form of a diabetic for likely the rest of their lives. Now, neuroplasticity is pretty cool because over a longer period of time, you can get that, that more remodeling out of a brain than you can probably out of the pancreas. But um, the the reality is is that it's an organic condition that is going to require... Certainly, uh, a a long period of of management. Do you think that's a a fair metaphor to use?
1: Yeah, that is a fair metaphor to use. And like, that's a, we, and like, thank God for neuroplasticity. Like, it is wonderful that we can regroup our brains. Um, But unfortunately, especially with long term damage, um, our brains are never going to recoup the way that they were in their original state before all the prolonged trauma or the um, prolonged drug use whatsoever, we will never be able to achieve that height of, I guess, you know, intellectual um, capacity. Um, Not saying that the brain isn't wonderful and that, you know, that it won't compensate in other areas and such Um, but it is a lifelong thing and it's you know like you need to once you use a synaptic pathway it gets easier each time right so um, even if let's say so I've been in recovery for quite some time um, but let's say if I I wouldn't, but decided to go out and do my drug of choice. Right. Um, that synaptic pathway is still there. It has not been pruned. So I am just choosing to use that one again. Right. And then it's going to just get easier and easier. So that's kind of what, how abstinence based logic is formed, right. Is that we need to prune those neural pathways that, um, that we use while we're in active addiction and such. Um, but you know, a lot of, um, a lot of people can, um, so weaken like, it depends on how much control and like impulse control you have. And again, that prefrontal cortex, um, thing, because I know a lot of people, um, that I've worked with who have been in active addiction have, um, you know, weirdly smoked crack on Tuesdays and have been fine, right? After that, like have, you know, are in control of their life, right? I don't understand it, but it's working for them, right? So, you know, they just have better impulse control than my brain. And that that's, that's the thing. Every brain is different, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's why trauma kind of... Um, shows itself in many ways right there's many kind of trauma related um mental health disorders um such as you know dissociative um personality disorder borderline personality disorder bipolar um schizophrenia all just kind of different different i guess dna um oh sorry words um dna um I guess, showing us how the trauma affected us, right? Um, So it's hard to kind of give it, again, what you've said, an overlapping kind of definition of, you know, can people recoup their brains? Um, Some people probably can, right? Um, Maybe not to the original level, but then there are some people who have either genetics or, you know, a long time, a prolonged trauma. That it's going to be super difficult to get it even close back to that um, original state. So it is, it is a constant. Um, it's a constant thing that needs support, um, and that's with opiate use disorder. Like it's been proven that it's a chronic, relapsing disorder, and that that's why, right? It's and that's why harm reduction. Has has to
0: be there so it's it's one of the ways that that i've always found it interesting to think about is is the whole idea that if you you've got a brain that's designed to seek reward pathways and i think the physiology is pretty clear on that um for somebody who has established reward pathways that have to do with substance use or gambling or uh, high risk behavior, we'll just put it under that whole umbrella when they go through periods where their are uh, the new ways to meet those reward pathways aren't there, whether it's the end of a relationship, whether it's some instability in the job, their brain is going to push them to still find those reward pathways. And so your, your point about how, uh, you know, once that pathway's there, it's there. The, uh, to me, it's, it seems that a person who's dealing with uh, addiction and recovery, um, is always going to have to contend with that sort of, if things get crappy, my brain's going to go, you know, it'd be really nice right now. And it's going to be whatever that high risk behavior is. Um, Let's talk a bit about the supervised consumption sites. Okay. Um, so supervised consumption sites have certainly been a contentious topic. Um, I'll tell you, you know, my, my take on it is that a, a big part of the reason why they're so contentious is because, A, they're poorly understood. Um, and yes. secondary to that... Uh, Again, going back to kind of what we talked about earlier, it's if I'm viewing a supervised consumption site um, and I've never had any troubles with addiction, I've never had any significant interactions with people who have dealt with uh, economic adversity or homelessness or list and list and list, uh, it's very easy for me to look at it only through my, I'll use the word privileged lens, uh, and go, ah, I don't need that. They just need that. themselves up by their bootstraps um and clearly that's flawed that's that's a flawed mentality what do you see is the 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 value of supervised consumption sites and if you could get people who approach supervised consumption sites with that external view uh to look at it a different way what would that way be
1: um okay so the value of um, supervised consumption sites um, is just the fact that like in Vancouver their supervised um, consumption site that it's a uh, it's a community center for junkies um, but I, I do agree with it because um, in my not in my last Beach on um human rights um day but in the one um before that i was speaking about maslow's hierarchy of needs right and um so the again those people that are like just pull up your bootstraps right they're talking about self-actualization and that's the talk that's our you know best selves right um but there's a bunch of needs that need to be filled below it to get to that top self um and first of it is food right and a lot of these safe consumption sites are the only places um that people eat for the day, right? Food, water, right in warmth are in there. Um, And there's a lot of, you know, why can't these people access other places for food um, and warmth because there is multiple resources, uh, but a lot of places won't accept people who are intoxicated into their facility. Um, So it is literally sometimes the only place they can go. Um, And then there's safety and security, Also in those basic needs as well um and you know again that safety that you can come here and we will protect you right that you will not die on our watch um because we are here we're trained right um Again, it's really hard to self-actualize and be your best person if you're constantly worried about overdosing and dying. Um, But then there's a second um, tier, which is psychological needs, um, and that is belonging. Um, That is that we need to feel like we belong somewhere um, in order to become our best selves. And right now, um, people in active addiction um, don't belong anywhere. They both don't belong on our streets. They don't belong, you know, in our malls. They don't belong even in their safe consumption sites, apparently, right? Um, and it, it it's literally a community, again, of unconditional love and support, right? That doesn't even support them, only on a, you know... Um, like keeping them alive level. There's biological, there's doctors, right? That, you know, let's get your health in order. There's psychological, there's um, peer support workers, um, there's psychologists, there's psychiatrists, there's societal. So um, if you're in poverty, well, let's get you housed, right? I know where to get clothes um, and, you know, the works and such. Um, So those all those needs need to be met and if we don't have a safe consumption site where people feel like they're belonged or like um have a sense of belonging or feel like they they're wanted we're taking that step away right and then it's impossible it's impossible for them to get to the top of the pyramid if we're taking steps away from them right (laughs) like um but you know also like I feel that safe consumption zones the like biggest problem is that it wrecks the community around um that safe consumption site right and it's you know it's bringing crime it's bringing um drug use into downtown which has always been but I'll humor them um so let's take it even further let's say that we can train any doctor um, with the skills of harm reduction, right? So that, you know, I am in active addiction. Let's say my drug of choice is opiates. Um, I can go into my, any walk-in clinic and be like, hey, can I inject this here and can you keep me safe, right? And that doctor will be trained and yes, yes you can right and you know if after we want to talk about mental health resources or if you want to see again there's a lot of walking clinics that now have a psychologist if we could add a social worker to every um, clinic as well um, so that they can you know refer it um, to the psychologist to the social worker Um, and that's that's when people are going to get a real sense that they belong in their community when everyone's looking out for them.
0: Mm. One of the one of the things that's that's s- striking to me about the the supervised consumption sites is the the fact that, I mean, even if you remove the ah, just deal with it argument. Uh, and, and they should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps argument, even if if you remove that, which to me is fundamentally flawed because you're, as soon as you say, here's what I think you should do for your addiction, um, I'm using my experiences and my lenses to say what's going to work best for you, even though I may not know very much about you at all as an individual. So it's to me, it's flawed right out of the gates there. But... The th- the thing that that trips me up the most is why people are resistant to supervised consumption sites. Is if you take a look at the costs that are involved from a purely economic standpoint, if if Timmy goes into a supervised consumption site, overdoses, uh, the staff there can use an Narcan kit that costs dollars. Um, to, to reverse that, uh, they can give them some oxygen to, to reverse that be, hypoxia being the number one thing that causes death and opioid abuse. Um, but if Timmy doesn't have that supervised consumption site, now he's doing that out on the street or at home. And now the, the, you know, the $5, $10 cost for that Narcan turns into a, 5 to 600 dollars cost to the taxpayer for an ambulance ride which then turns into a several thousand dollar assessment and observation in the ER which if Timmy was lucky and he's not too he didn't suffer too much of a hypoxic injury he's then able to go back out on the streets but if he's not lucky he's going to spend some time in the ICU which is only going to cost more and more and more money so even if we ignore the the best evidence on addiction treatment even if we ignore the best evidence on Uh, the statistics for supervised consumption sites and then being able to move people into treatment pathways like you were talking about from a strictly fiscal approach, it just makes more sense. Why do you think people can't get to a place? I mean, there's... Even the, even the arguments, like you mentioned, the, the, the increased crime, I mean, those are mitigatable using a model, whether it's, it's using walk-in clinics or, I mean, Calgary was looking into portable supervised consumption sites with a bus for a while there. Um, why do you think people are so resistant to admitting that they're wrong about the way that they think about addiction?
1: it honestly it's using the same brain pathways that um, almost cause addiction it's fear-based <laughs> thinking uh, right that's it it's very ironic uh, <laughs> um so it is fear-based um thinking and it's that black and white us versus them mentality right um and you know I find the people that have the biggest um you know I guess, resilience uh, um, or resistance against, um, you know, supervised consumption sites or harm reduction have been hurt in the past, past by an addict. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, again, there's the trauma right there, right? So they are, they have been hurt by someone with addiction or someone they knew was hurt um, by someone who is an active addiction. Um, so now this trauma that we've, um, had integrates into our personality and, um, to keep us safe, um, we think in black and white terms, right? And that's not always particularly bad, um, such as like leaving an abusive, um, relationship, we have to think in black and white, right? We have to think our ex is awful. We cannot have that gray area um, because then we might go back to them, right? And we might hurt ourselves again. And our brains are really um, great in protecting us uh, with that and such. But I think that's um, a lot of why people can't see the gray in addiction is because I've been hurt by that. So I need to think in black and white to protect myself from that. Right. Um, and, you know, I think it's also isolation. Um, so like we think of prejud- prejudice and stereotype and how it's formed and it is that us versus them mentality, but it's also a lack of exposure to, um, whatever group you're, um, stereotyping or you know um holding prejudice to um and like we are our, our city's not like i think about this often and i i don't have a solution whatsoever um but we isolate so there's homeless shelters right and that's where all the homeless people um go right there's addiction centers and that's where you know people with addiction go right and it's separated from um the general public right it's almost like uh Uh, it's almost like we're repressing our subconscious problems and they're coming back up, right. As they always do. Um, and we need to learn a way to expose the general public to people with addictions. So, um, because exposure theory is the best theory against prejudice and stereotyping. Um, and that's just interaction, right? Uh, that is why people, that's why people, um, who um, have been black, have infiltrated the KKK and been able to actually get people to step down, right? It's because once they realize who they're talking with, once you put a face, you know, you can have all these stereotypes like, oh, they chose it, right? Um, They're a bad person, you know, all these excuses uh, for why we don't like this person, right? But it's really hard once we start befriending people to hold those opposite views right we we have to let one go and usually it's the maladaptive negative views that we have on that person um again and i think that that does really put that like these people should be welcomed in all of our communities and such um and so that there is interaction with people right they don't have to go into some secluded place right because that just um develops more stigma more isolation to the matter um and doesn't produce any understanding or compassion right um whether it's community centers in which you know everyone can come to and learn about coping mechanisms and it's free so you know, everyone can interact. We can talk to each other, right? We can grow together. Um, I'm not quite sure, but it, uh, the system that's going um, on is creating an even bigger divide um, between people.
0: And I think at the end of the day, I mean, one of the arguments for the supervised consumption sites, and you mentioned this in the, the segment that you did on the special, uh, is... At the end of the day, you can't help someone who's dead. And if if I mean one of the one of the the, the jokes that I'm most fond of is uh, the how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, on, only one, but the light bulb's got to want to change. And and I think that that applies very heavily to addiction treatment. And again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it it, it seems to me that. If you're trying to force help on somebody who's not at a place where they can accept it yet, that help will not be effective. And so if that's where that person's at, the question then becomes not how do we force help on this person in the way that we want them to accept it, because it's it's just not going to work, to, okay, well, how do we bridge the gap between where they are right now and where they are getting, helping them get to a place where they will be able to accept that help. And especially when we're talking about, uh, opioids, uh, where the, the potential from death from overdoses is, is much higher than a lot of other high risk behaviors or, or drugs. If we don't fill that gap with something, then that gap gets filled with bodies.
1: Yeah, yeah, That's exactly it. And, um, Yeah, so I, I, yeah, so sorry, there's a lot to dig through for what you just said. Um, So yes, you cannot like that's the number one thing you learned from helping people is that um, you don't really help them um change whatsoever. You support them so they can help themselves, right? Um, and again, I said harm reduction is the basis of unconditional love, right? um And unconditional love means that there's no shame, right? And that's, shame is, is such a huge thing where it just deteriorates our self-worth and, you know, our self-confidence. It makes us feel bad for how we cope it makes us feel like we deserve to be where we're at right um we deserve to be an active addiction we deserve the suffering um we deserve you know our toxic relationships um but that's where heart reduction comes in with its unconditional love if we can take away that shame and be like no it's okay we're gonna stay with you no matter who like who you decide to be or what you decide to do, we're going to stick there. Right. Um, we can kind of show them what a healthy relationship is, right. Because healthy relationships don't put conditions on people they love. We understand that they're always changing. And even if there's a phase that we go through that we can help support people, um, to work through it or to get out of it. Right. Um, And within that, we build people's self-worth and self-confidence. Once we build that, um, and I know this from experience, um, you realize that, like, hey, I am worth it. I am worth taking the time to go to treatment. I am worth, you know, not putting up with the toxic relationships that constantly um, make me inferior. You know, I'm worth... um, you know, getting up and brushing my hair, right, and brushing my teeth. Like, it's, it's that self-worth and that self-confidence that, that is like the embodiment of harm reduction, right? Like, that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to, you know, kill these people. We're not trying to, you know, inject them with drugs. That's, that's not it. We want to make sure that they're alive so that we can care for them the way that they haven't been cared for ever, obviously, in their life. So that they can feel wanted, belonged, and they can feel like they can, they can relax, right? They can be like, okay, I've been holding all this shame and resentment and, you know, self-hatred in myself. And like, maybe I don't need to hold this because no one around me reflects that, right? We are who we are around. Like, If we decide to just leave people in these isolated groups of addiction, they're just going to reflect behaviors towards each other. We need to stop that and reflect another behavior, right? Um, It's modeling. It's basic modeling, right? We need to model healthy relationships, healthy coping mechanisms, and healthy um, structures of care um, before... These people can build self-worth so they can, you know, again, if they want to go into abstinence-based um, care after that, I'm all for that. I'm not against abstinence-based um, treatment whatsoever, right? But I just realized that they have to make that choice and I want to be there to support them um, through their journey of making that choice, whether they do it or not, right? hmm
0: I think it's really important to highlight the fact that there is not one cookie-cutter solution to managing uh, addiction. Um, because it seems like that's a big part of what the, the current provincial government is trying to, to pursue. Do you think, I mean, in, in listening to you to you speak here, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that the path that the current provincial government seems to have taken is one where they're almost saying we're only going to provide you with supports if you behave the way that we want you to behave. Um, did, yeah. It, doesn't that just cause more more damage because if 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 these people aren't in a place where they're able to accept that or or do that saying well, if you can't do that, then you're not worth our time. To me, that only exacerbates the trauma.
1: Yep, and and adds more shame to that individual. So they're more likely to not seek help to do those self-destructive things, Like, right? Like, we are literally society... The government is making society exclude them. So that self-hatred is just going to go much deeper, right? Um... And yeah, like oh, sorry, Jason Kenny, that guy. Um, he has said they like again that we tell our clients that there's um, they don't have more like good moral agency over their addiction, and like there is no moral agency in addiction. It is not a choice that has been proven, right? Like that is proven in multiple academic. Um, journals right so i don't know what he's talking about whatsoever um and i don't think he does either but um like like just the fact that he is wanting people to use their moral agency to get out of addiction um is a not scientifically backed and impossible to do right because it's not moral agency that um, made them choose addiction whatsoever it's just very uneducated um and and damaging um as you said before it when we take this view not only do people feel rejected by society and that self-hatred fu- fuels more drug use because they're trying to cope from, you know, their feelings of rejection, of isolation, of just, you know, devastation. Um, but people are going to die. Like, that's that's the unfortunate. It's not just an uneducated opinion. It's an uneducated opinion that's going to lead to more deaths, more deaths in an already vulnerable population and as i in the beginning i said grief of a of a love like of a loved one dying is trauma right and that's prolonged trauma so we are just we're just traumatizing them and perpetuate perpetuating trauma within that community and then looking at them and being like well just pull up your bootstraps and get better right and it's what?
0: <laughs> well, and it's 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 fascinating to me that that whole moral agency line. I'm not even going to call it an argument because it's just so much bullshit. Um, but that, that whole moral agency line, I'm curious if Mr. Kenny would say to, given that we've established that there's a, a, a physiological organic component to addiction, whether we're talking about the the, the brain part or whether we're talking about the, the sheer physical part, I mean, uh, if... Anyone who's ever seen a hardcore alcoholic stop drinking, no, you you can't watch that process where they're having seizures and DTs and all of that and go, ah, it's just a choice. It's all in their mind because it has a very real impact on their body. Um, And I can't help but wonder if Mr. Kenny would say to people who are facing diseases like cancer or like Parkinson's or like, uh any other organic process and say you know what if you just had stronger moral agency this wouldn't be happening to you
1: exactly and that's what i said with my last um, speech as well right like that he would not he would not go to someone with schizophrenia and be like just use your moral agency and you'll be able to cure yourself it's it's ridiculous um and unfortunately just every um attack that he's had against it he's like oh but you know this it, he, he he said that it was offensive that um, a reporter asked him why he wasn't going with harm reduction even though it's evidence-based treatment um because a panel of experts um de- uh, made that decision um but like the unfortunate part of that panel of experts was it was all abstinence-based um, experts, no harm reduction, even though they had a Chinese medicine um, specialist on there, right? Like, okay, I, I
0: I have to really, really sort of question the the use of the term experts when at least one of them didn't know that you you can't ask an unconscious person if they want oxygen. <laughs>
1: right right like it just it baffles me and then it's also like obviously he just picked people so he can create an echo chamber of his own thoughts right um his own uneducated thoughts <laughs> um, and you know i feel like that that really isn't democracy or you know like informed um like collective decision on how we're going to move forward um, with this topic. But you know, that, that's a whole other issue. When,
0: when, when we come to the, the end of these interviews, I always like to ask the guest um, if there's, there's anything that they'd like to say to a group. I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. Um, If, and I'm going to ask you if there's, what would you like to say to people who are dealing with addiction, and what would you like to say to the people who uh, just believe that people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps? So those 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 two groups, I imagine, you're going to have very different messages for. But what would you <laughs> what, what would you say to people who are who are struggling with addiction right now?
1: um to forgive themselves honestly um to realize that coping mechanisms um you know are there to protect yourself right and that we should not feel guilty for the coping mechanisms that we choose to take care of ourselves we just need to realize that there's pros and cons to each coping mechanisms and we want to bring the best forward to us right um and that you know pre-growing brain neural pathways is a process. Um, it's not something that's going to be instant and it's going to be a lot of struggle. It's going to be a lot of relapse. That doesn't mean it's not worth it. Um, and that we need to start lightening up on ourselves, right? That we can only heal through self-love and not through self-hatred, right? So let's say uh actually really real example so when i was in recovery um i relapsed quite a bit and when we when i hated myself um for it i would relapse even further i'd be like oh fuck it this is just who i am right like (laughs) just going to go off the deep end um with it but um when i learned self-love um I realized that even if I could go 24 hours without using, that 24 hours counts, right? That counts to my better future, right? Even if I used after, I still did 24 hours, right? And that's that all adds to the equation of a better life. Um, and always just telling myself um, when I messed up that I must have needed it. Like, I must have like, there must have been stress that I couldn't cope with. So I knew how I did what I knew how to do, right? And there should be no hatred or shame in that. That is just, you know, normal human functioning. Um, we, We always need states of equilibrium, right? Even though sometimes we don't know the best way to get it.
0: Okay. And what would you say to the, uh, the Jasons, the Jason Luans, the Jason Nixons and the Jason Kennys?
1: Again, I would hope that to expose yourself, like just go out, like have some humility, um, have some humility that maybe you don't know what is going on. Right. And you don't have a full picture. And the only way that you can get that full picture is by, you know a either researching it or going out and talking to people who have either recovered from active addiction um or are in active addiction, addiction. um just because that way we you know we we can't assume anything because we have things that are actually in our reality um that we are getting our information from not you know the media not whatever opinions I can think up right um and that's that's really again the basis of all healing is to unisolate unindividualize ourselves and you know actually work as a community together so just hold up assumptions just be like oh I'm assuming right I don't actually have you know any kind of clarity or research behind this thought. So maybe I should seek out more clarity, um, whether that be right now via the internet, because we're in COVID and everyone's isolating. But once this is over, maybe, you know, um, to volunteer, volunteer at the drop-in center just for one, one day. Right. And um, see where it goes.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to. I want to thank you again uh, so much for being so generous with your time. Um, I I, I want to thank you for your your advocacy on these issues. Uh, addiction is is to me one of the most poorly understood concepts uh, that's out there, and unfortunately, we see uh, politicians and people of other stripes who are more than happy to exploit people's lack of understanding of it for their own ends and i think it's it's really unfortunate because it does come with a a huge human cost so so thank you for your for your advocacy and and trying to raise awareness if it's okay with you what we're going to do is uh, we're going to post this episode um, and then at the same time we're also going to post the segment uh, that that you did for the special um so that people have both that they can refer to if they want to listen to almost an hour and a half of of conversation uh on and information on uh, addiction and uh harm reduction
1: yes uh, yeah nope that would be lovely the more information out there the, the that's what i'm hoping is just for more informed people right
0: awesome well, thank you, thank you so much again, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to have you on again in the, in the future to, to touch on some more of the stuff, because uh, if human history has taught us anything, this is not a, a challenge that's going to go away.
1: Nope, definitely not. Thank you so much for having me. You have a wonderful day. <laughs>
0: And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. Now, we want to just take a quick sec to remind you that we're only able to produce the kind of content that we do because of the support that we receive from our Patreon supporters. So if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, please consider signing up to be one of our Patreon supporters at www.patreon.com slash the breakdown And if you're listening to the audio version of our podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review because it's those things that help us to get the podcast in front of more and more people. And as always, thank you very much for your time.